Good morning, everyone. Um, welcome, welcome. Um, this Sunday, we're going to be um, talking about sacrifices. We've entered this season of Lent. We've been focusing on some of the themes uh, of Lent. Um, as I wrote in my blog this week, it's important for us to kind of hold a lot of different things when we go through Lent. The first one is to realize that this is an opportunity for us to intentionally walk and journey with the Lord. Um, and I think the challenge for me this year has been how do we do that together? Um, a lot of times we focus on Lent, we focus on what do I have to do? Or, or, or for some of us, what do I have to give up, right? Um, how is it about me? But I think the challenge when you look at Lent historically is that it's a, it's, a, it's a chance for all of us, right? As a community, as a body, as a family to say, what does it mean for all of us to take up our cross and follow God? What does it mean to, to, to truly seek the glory and uplift of God? What does it mean community-wise to, to draw closer to God? What does it mean to not just turn our eyes and our hearts, but to keep them fixed on following God? So while we do that and think communally, we can't also forget the individual, right? Because we got to hold both of them. So then it says, what does it mean for me to sacrifice? What does it mean for me to institute disciplines that make me either rely on God even deeper or even more? Or what does it mean to, to, to kind of put these things in my life that will help me draw closer to God? But the ultimate question of Lent, I think, is am I reliant on God? And what does that look like? What does that look like in a culture, in a, a, a body, in a country, in a society where everything I want is at my fingertips, right? We probably have more access to things than, than maybe any society ever, right? So what does it mean to need in a society that tells you that you can have everything you want? What does it mean to need when you have everything that you think you need. So I think Lent forces us into that place, right? And, and to get there and to kind of unpack some of this, I think the best posture I've found for Lent is to remember that this is us grabbing hold of God who's already holding on to us. Now, traditionally, historically, Lent is kind of focused on, on two things. The first one is Jesus' fast in the wilderness, which is coincidentally, not coincidentally at all, our, our passage for this morning, right? So the focus is these 40 days that, and I think it's fascinating because because you have to remember the, the context, right? This is after he's baptized, but this is before he goes out in ministry. One of the things that as brethren in Christ, when we talk about baptism, we say it's not just, oh, obedience to God, but it's also kind of cool because you're stepping forward to say, I'm a part of the body, right? I'm a part of this congregation, but also that I am ready now for God to use me into ministry. And, and, and in so doing, we follow Jesus too. Jesus does not begin ministry before baptism. But Jesus also does not begin ministry before the wilderness. So, so, so historically, the church has said, hey, we go through these 40 days remembering, right, that Jesus is about to go into ministry, that Jesus is in the wilderness, that he's hungry, right, that he needs to have angels at the end to lift him up, but also that he was tempted. Now, now also historically, and because of the time of Lent beginning on Ash Wednesday, we also focus at the same time on the march towards Calvary. Because on our church calendar, it starts Ash Wednesday and goes into Holy Week, right? So it's really weird to think about Lent and not think about the end, right? To think about the wilderness, but not think about the salvation to come. To think about the hunger, but not think about, is that hunger forcing me to rely on God? So for us together as a community and individually, when we think about wilderness, we think about what does it mean to pray and truly converse with God? What does sacrifice look like? What does repentance look like as a body, not just individually? And what does reconciliation look like? The new one for me is that historically the church also during Lent asked this question, what does giving look like? 
Because they recognize something that I think we're sometimes slow to recognize is that they realize that every resource they had, they tend to hold on to it tight. So during Lent, they would ask sacrificially, what is something during these 40 days that I can give, not just for God's glory, for the betterment of my sister or brother? But also, as we march towards Calvary, we can ask those same questions. What does taking up our cross look like? What does following Jesus actually look like for me in this season? The, the Greek Orthodox, or really just the Orthodox Church, when they looked at Lent, they, they, they called it um, Sharmalopi, right, or Sharmalipi. And what's fascinating about this is, is, is uh, Merriam-Webster had a thing this week of, of words in other languages, right, that have no meaning in English, right? You just can't force them on here, right? And there's this one word, I'm going to pronounce it bad, I think it's Japanese called like sundoku, not sudoku, sundoku, and that is the art of collecting books you'll never read. I was like, ooh, I'm a champion of that. Right? I'm like, I am really brilliant at that one, you know? But, but, but Charmi Leopi is, is the same idea, right? When I'm just like, they just need to go to a seminary. There's tons of these words we can't translate into English, right? But this one is, it's, 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 it, 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 this is how the Orthodox describe Lent. They say it's, it's joy, right, emerging out of sadness. And you can get that because you're like, yeah, wilderness, and then you get relief at the end, or march towards Calvary and you get to Easter. But that's not enough for them. They're like, oh, you got that part now, joy coming out of sadness. But it's also sadness coming out of joy. And you're like, wait a second. That's tricky. You know, like, I can get like it's bad now and it's sweet later. But what do you mean sadness coming out of joy? It's because they're trying to put words to this idea of when we go through Lent. And I think this is an important reminder because for a lot of us, at least my first introduction to Lent, it was all about glum, right? It was just like, oh, I'm struggling through this, you know? And they're saying, no, 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 no. You can't forget that joy and sadness are supposed to meet. You can't forget the destination of where you're trying to go. You can't forget that these two not only dwell together, but they rise up together. So wherever you are in this Lenten season, my prayer for all of us is Shamilipi, right? That we're actually holding on to the bitter and the sweet, right? That we're in the wilderness, but not forgetting our destination. That we're thinking about sacrifice, but only in light of, is it asking me or leading me or forcing me even to rely more on God? And just like every good Sunday school question, right, when we don't know the answer, we turn to Jesus, right? So how do we do this? Jesus. What is our example of doing this? Jesus. What's the best way to do this? Jesus. And that brings us to Matthew 4. After the baptism, before the ministry, Jesus enters into the wilderness. If you have your Bibles, turn with me now to Matthew chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 1 to 11, starting at verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, uh, probably a better translation is tested by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter or the tester came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, we shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, Deuteronomy 3. Then the devil took him to the holy city and, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are indeed the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will not command his angels concerning you. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against stone. I always like to pause there to realize that the devil is quoting scripture. And that should terrify us. 
But we'll go on. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy 6. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Let's pray together. Father, our God, we thank you this morning. As we think about sacrifice, may we think about not only the denial of self, the denial of want, of need, the denial of, 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 of the things of earth for the things of heaven, but may we be reminded that our call is to follow you. So God, help us to let go of these things that so easily ensnare us, of these thoughts that, that, that in, in rapture or, or capture all of our imaginations and our hopes and our desires and help us to know that this life is meant to be lived for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your example in the wilderness. Not only did you fulfill what God's people in the Old Testament could not, not only did you give us a model and an example and a, a way to follow God, but that you got through the wilderness. You survived all the tests. And you still went out and lived for God's glory. Lord, may we do the same. In this season of sacrifice, may we remember your ultimate sacrifice. In this season of self-denial, may we remember your humility. In this season of relying on God fully, may we be so empowered by the Spirit to rely on God fully too. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, what we know about Lent is that for a lot of us who didn't grow up in the church or didn't grow up in a Catholic church or didn't grow up in one of the many Protestant churches that practices Lent, is that it's, it's foreign, right? In fact, for me, when I first got introduced to Lent, I was like, it's Catholic. Because everyone I knew in my Southwest Philly neighborhood that practiced Lent were Catholic, right? On Ash Wednesday, you would know who the Catholics were because they would walk around with the cross on their foreheads, right? And I always thought that was funny as a kid. I'm just like, wow. That's beautiful, because the rest of the year, I didn't even know you were Christian, but that's just me. I was judgmental. I was judgmental, y'all. I had to get that out of my system, right? But the point is, that's how I identified Lent, right? By, by the people who had ashes on their forehead. I'm like, okay, those are the people who follow Lent. But the truth is, is that Lent is really Catholic. But when we say Catholic in our setting, we mean Roman Catholic. But the original meaning of the word is simply universal, Right? It's, it's literally all of us, meaning that this is something that from the very beginning, the first Christians thought that Christians ought to be doing. And somehow through the, you know, you know, from Reformation, Martin Luther, and then maybe us with the radical Reformations, Anabaptists, we just say that like, okay, that's too Catholic. We're not going to do it anymore. Right? There are things that other people in our faith follow. If it doesn't look like Jesus, it's okay to take away. But there's not much in the Bible that looks more like Jesus than what Jesus went through in the 40 days in the wilderness, right? There's nothing more, I would argue, that Lent is actually one of the most Jesus things. Why? Because he's actually in the wilderness with us. He's actually in the wilderness in our story. He's actually going through these things. And so when they implemented it, they didn't say, oh, only a certain group of Christians get to do it. It's actually saying we all should be doing it. We all should be engaging in this Lenten season. So what does that look like? One of my, um, well, my youngest, I'll just out her. You know, a couple weeks ago, we had Ash Wednesday service, and I forget who her Sunday school teacher, I think it was you, Caleb, actually, but it was one of her, her teachers back there was just like, hey, so what are you giving up for Lent? And she looked them dead in the eye and says, school. <laughs> and I was just like, that's actually quite brilliant, right? If it's painful and it's not adding to my life, I need to get rid of it, right? 
But as we walked through her amateur theology, with my amateur theology, we got to a point where we were just like, I don't know if that, that's one of the things we're going for here, right? So she goes, oh, I get it. I'm going to give up TV. And I was like, wow, this is brilliant. I was like, this is great. And she was just like, yeah, it's cool, Dad. I have my tablet. I was like, feel as though we're missing the mark, right? Parenting 101, let's try again, right? But for a lot of us, when we think about Lent, we boil it down to only what do I have to give up? And for some of us, we think about, well, maybe something that's negative, or maybe it's something we don't want to do anyway, or, or maybe it's something we can afford to do, and that's the hard one, right? Like, she can afford to give up TV because she has her tablet with all her shows on already, right? She can afford to give up things that's not really a sacrifice. And so, so this year, as we march towards Calvary, as we go through this season, I want to invite us not just to go to the wilderness or invite God into our wilderness. I want us to not just look forward to Resurrection Sunday, right? But I want us to actually invite God and say, how are we preparing for Jesus to come? Now, that is a question we ask at Christmas time, right? But what does it mean to ask it in this season? How are you preparing for what Jesus is going to do that Holy Week? How are you preparing for the sacrifice that Jesus is going to make? How are you doing it? Traditionally, there's three ways we've asked, or the church has asked us to do this, to, to prepare for this celebration at the end. The first one is the inward exercises, right? And that's prayer. That's studying scripture. That's meditating. And yes, that's fasting. But there's also outward disciplines, right? So it's not just, and I love this because it's, it's, it's Christianity has to be not just about what it does for me, but what does it does for us? Or how can God use me for us? So the inward is how you grow, how you rely on God, how you're built up so that you can go out, right? I think we should also have that same mindset towards Sunday morning, right? How do we get built up so that we can go out? Because the thing is, we're here two hours on a Sunday morning. We're out there a lot more hours, right? So, it's, so how do we get filled up so that we can go out? And so the communal, or the out, or I mean, the outward exercises are service, but also solitude. And that was tricky for me because I'm just like, well, I think you can do solitude by yourself. But I think what they're asking us to do is, in a world of noise, how do you live a peaceful life? In a world of, well, in, in Liberia, we have this word that doesn't really translate to English. It's called chakla, right? It means what you think it means. Like chakla, right? That's hilarious. Siri just said, I can't translate into English yet. <laughs> Look at Liberia making historical moves. But the idea of chakla is literally what it sounds like, like things just scattered everywhere and just chaos, right? So how do we not add to the chaos? How do we not add to the noise? How do we say, God, I'm trusting in you as I navigate all these everyday scenes, right? But it's also about lives of submission. So how do we on the outside live as Jesus is Lord? How do we live in a way that we're spirit-empowered, right? So that when we walk into this darkness, when we walk into brokenness, when we walk into chaos, that the spirit is the one who's helping us shine for God's glory. And then there's the communal aspects or the communal exercises like worship. Not just what we do on Sunday morning, but, but what we do in our families, what we do during our everyday scenes. There's repentance. And again, here in the West, when we think about repentance, we often think about what do I have to do or, or my forgiveness or, or God, I fell short. But the challenge of Lent historically, traditionally, theologically has always been for the church to ask, what do we need to repent from? 
Because we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But we as God's people still fall short. So in this season, what do we need to ask forgiveness for him? And so when we go into Jesus in the wilderness this morning, I want us to kind of expand our view of Lent in all these different ways, right? But if you want to sum it all up, I want us to move from what we give up to who fills us up. I want us to move from thinking of sacrifices like, okay, I'm going to cut this out because that's what I'm supposed to do, to I'm actually going to invite Jesus in. Because I think the word for the Christian life and the word hopefully for us during this Lent season should be surrender. What do I surrender to increase my reliance on God? What do I surrender to increase God's hold of me instead of the hold of the things of the world? What do I surrender for God's glory? So we meet Jesus in the wilderness, and we, the, the, the passage begins by saying that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And I found that fascinating. Because when we think about Jesus being empowered by the Spirit, we think about the miracles. We think about the life change. We think about the teaching. We think even about Calvary. But we think about the fact that as Jesus is faithfully following God, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. And that was kind of reorienting for me. To think about the fact that it's not just that God is with me in the wilderness, but that God might have led me to the wilderness. Because sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes things are so good, I take my eyes off of God. And sometimes, like my six-year-old, I have to be forced not into the wilderness. I want you to hear me clearly on this. I think sometimes we get this wrong and be like, that's why bad things happen to you. God's trying to teach you something. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying when we're in the wilderness, we tend to look up a little bit more. When we don't have, we think to trust a little bit more freer, right? When we don't know what's going to happen and we finally realize how small we are, we tend to be more willing to trust on our God who's big. So I'm not saying bad things happen to you because God wants to teach you a lesson. That would be bad theology. But I'm saying in bad things you learn a lesson. That's good theology. And so, so the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And, and you know the Spirit is leading and upholding Jesus because we're told here that he's fasting. He's in the wilderness without food and water for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, you have to also understand that, that we reread from Matthew. That's the first New Testament book that, that we have in our scriptures, right? But the scripture to Jesus, and this is significant, is what we call the Old Testament, so when we're, Matthew's writing about this 40 days and 40 nights, we as the church say, oh, yeah, it's the march towards Calvary. You know, it's Jesus getting ready for ministry. But everyone in Jesus' audience would have been like, oh, wait, Moses went to the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, right? And the first time he did it was to, to get the law from God from Sinai, right? The next time he did it wasn't so good. You know, he came down, it was a golden calf. And he had to go and plead to God for 40 days and 40 nights because the people had turned their eyes off of God. But it was also Elijah who was fasting or on the run really for 40 days and 40 nights because Jezebel was trying to kill him, right? So when, when they say Jesus is into the wilderness, they weren't thinking like, wow, this is such a spiritual thing. It was just like, ooh, what happened? Who messed up? What is going on here? Like something bad, right? And then we're introduced to the idea that, that after the Spirit leads him, the devil shows up. And so for them, they're going to think not just ominous bad, but they're going to start to say, that, like, oh, this ain't going to be a good story. 
right? Like he's away from the people, he's away from the community, he's in the wilderness, he's hungry. How many of us know that when we're hungry, we don't think in our right mind? Right? That's why those Snickers commercials are so good. Hangry? Why wait, right? Like, it's just like, like, that's why, because at his weakest point is where the devil shows up. And I think that's a really good lesson for us. Because a lot of times when you're doing well, the devil just may not show up. When you feel strong by your relationship with God, the devil might not want to attack just then and there. It's when you crack the door open and that door becomes a split. And that split becomes a chasm. And that chasm becomes division. That's when the devil says, now I'm going to strike. And after 40 days without food and water, after 40 days, yes, he's led out there by the spirit. But the devil says, now I'm ready to attack. And how does he attack? He first attacks the physical body. He says, Jesus, I know you're hungry. I know you have power. I know you're the son of God. Those, those, those stones, nobody going to see it. Just turn those stones to bread. He attacks the physical, and I think that's important. Because a lot of times when we start with Lent, we start at the end, right? Where we say that, like, sometimes I give up the physical to rely on God. Jesus is already there, right? Like, Jesus, doesn't, he doesn't have to be like, I'm going to fast from these things. Like, he's already there. He's weak. He's tired. The Spirit's uplifting him, but he still feels alone because what he sees in front of him isn't the Spirit. It's the devil, Right? Who he's talking to, yes, the spirit is inside of him, but who he's talking to is the tempter. And I want us to hold on to that because, again, it doesn't mean the spirit's not with you when you're tested. It doesn't mean that God isn't with you when you're going through the wilderness. God is there, the spirit is there, but the devil is there too. And so he says, I want you to use your power. I want you to use your position for your own good. So perhaps for some of us, that's an invitation to take a step back, to ask ourselves in this Lenten season, how have I been using my power, my position for my own good? How have I been turning stones to bread because I don't think anyone else is looking so that I can eat, right? There's this meme of, of I think it's LeBron on the, no, it's, it's Chris Paul. Oh, no, it's Russell Westbrook, one of them black basketball players, you know? It's Russell Westbrook, and he's eating, right? He's eating on the bench. I wish I should put it up. Maybe second service, right? He's eating on the bench as if no one sees him. And I feel as though that's how some of us use power or position for our advantage, right? And, and so this is what Satan is. He's not just attacking the physical body. He's saying, I know you're hungry, yes, but can you use that hunger for your good? And what's fascinating is that Jesus' response is we can't live on bread alone. And then you'll see throughout this passage, he's going to basically say two things in three different ways. The first one is we can't live on God's, we can't live on bread alone, yes. But we have to actually live on God's work and we have to live on God's word. He quotes Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 3. And Matthew didn't have time for all that, so he shortened it, right? So all you get is man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. But I want to read you the whole passage of what Jesus is actually quoting, right? Because Satan would have known, right? Satan would have known this is where Jesus comes from. He says, Deuteronomy says this, Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath of your, to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness for these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you the hunger and then feeding you with manna, 
which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Matthew gives us the Cliff Notes version. What Jesus said to the devil is actually, listen, you want me to turn these stones to bread? We've already seen this story before. God has already led us into the wilderness, and he provided in the wilderness. God has already made the promises, and he took us to the promised land. God has already been true. That's why we live on God's word alone. When you only read the short nose version, you get the bumper sticker. But what Jesus is saying, I'm actually going to trust God. Why? Because God has been good. Because God has been faithful. Because this trial I'm going through, we've gone through it before, and God has seen us through. That's why we don't live on God's word alone, because God has proven that he is good. God has proven that when I am hungry, yes, physically, that there's going to be provision I've never even imagined before. No one went into the wilderness knowing what manna is. Thousands of years later, most of us still don't know what manna is. But we know that God provided, and we know that they were full, and we know that they got through. So Jesus then moves on, or Satan, the devil, moves on and says, listen, okay, cool. God showed up. He'll give you food. I know you're hungry, but you're just going to ignore that. So let's try something else, right? So the second one, he says, listen, why don't you just climb up, you know, like throw yourselves down, you know, like this angels will protect you. You're the son of God. You have a whole mission. Like, they're not going to hurt you. God will send angels. I'm going to read this song. Remember that song we sang in Sabbath school, right? Like, I'm going to sing this song that said the angels will come and rescue you. And Jesus' response is what? We can't put God to the test. And that's fascinating because as a kid, I'm just like, well, Jesus is God. He's being tested. I don't know how to work that out. But Jesus, again, is not reading the New Testament. He's pulling from Old Testament uh, 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 law thinking, right? And the thinking in the Old Testament is this concept of like, you cannot, if you follow God, show this complete distrust of God as if you're trying God to, for him to prove himself, right? That's a lot of word salad to say that like, you can't go to God, hey, I'm going to do this so you show up. If you really love me, you ought to show up this way. Like, you ought to not live in a way that you say, God, I don't really think you're working. Prove it to me. And so that's what Jesus is trying to get at because he's saying, listen, I know God will protect me. I know God's with me. I don't have to throw myself off this hill or this mountain to prove that God loves me. Why? Because I'm going to live, right, on God's work. So he quotes Deuteronomy again. He says, it is also written in Deuteronomy 6.16, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Right? Uh, 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 another translation actually talks about this place uh, uh, called, uh, in the Old Testament where, again, they're in the desert and the Israelites are quarreling to Moses and, and there's no water, right? And as a kid, I was such a smart guy. I'm like, well, you're in the wilderness. Why are you complaining? You know there's no water, right? And then I started following God. And I'm like, I complain about a lot more than they did, but that's just, you know, introspection. But they're complaining because there's no water in the desert. And, and so Moses tries to rebuke them. Right? And he says, y'all, we can't be putting God to the test. We know he's been faithful. He led us out of Egypt. He's going to lead us through this. We're getting to the promised land. And their response was like, cool, we believe you, Moses. We, we, yeah, this is awesome. No, they actually threatened to kill him. Right? We don't tell that part in Sunday school. They threatened to kill him. So Moses goes back to God, and he's terrified. He's actually terrified. I'm like, Lord, you need to get your people. <laughs> like, not only do they want to kill me, they don't trust you. They put you to the test. Right? And God's reaction is what? Walk along, Moses. Go to the rock, Moses, strike the rock, Moses, and water will come out. 
in the midst of quarreling and rebuking and bitterness and lack of order, God still provides. So in quoting this verse, Jesus is saying, yeah, we may be destitute now, but we trust a God who brings water from rock. Yes, we may think the natural thing to do is to quarrel and to complain, but we trust a God who's made us through. We can live not by testing God, but by trusting God's work by trusting the ways he's been faithful to us, by trusting the ways he's come through, by trusting his word. So when we go after, you know, the the physical, now we've gone after the privilege, right? Because Jesus has privilege. He can literally throw himself off and he can catch himself. So then the question during this Lenten season becomes not just am I using my power for the glory of God or for the help of my brother and sister, is am I using my privilege to do the same? Because what we tend to do here in the West is to use our privilege, right, for us. Or maybe for me and mine. Or maybe for the people I deem that's important. But again, the example of Jesus is how do I crucify, how do I sacrifice these things to help not only me, but us rely on God. So if I can't attack you physically, if I can't attack your privilege, maybe I'll try to try and true think of your pride. And I think this is fascinating. Because as a kid, this also confused me. I'm like, if Jesus is really the God of the universe, can you tempt him? Right? Like, if Jesus really created everything, you're like, I'm going to give it back to you. That's weird, right? That's like the equivalent of my kids being like, this is your house. I'll give you your house. It's just like, thank you, I guess. Right? But I think we forget the humanity of Jesus in that thinking. But we also forget that some of us, right, the reason fasting is so hard, some of us, when we skip a meal, you know, we want Jesus to come back in that moment. Right? And and so it's 40 days without eating, without drinking. He's at his weakest, right? And and sometimes that's when pride shows up. But I think most of us aren't naturally prideful people, right? We're from central Pennsylvania. We live to put our head down, right? We live to not take any credit for stuff, right? We'll just passive aggressively address it, but we're not necessarily a a prideful people, right? Unless passive aggressive and pride, I don't know. We can work that out later, right? But the thing is that most of us are not naturally arrogant and proud. But when we're our weakest, or when we feel attacked, or when we feel vulnerable, pride shows up. And so that's what happens here. And he goes to Jesus and says, listen, all you got to do, nobody looking, all you got to do is bow down and worship me, and you can have it all. I think that temptation probably shows up to us in the West more than the other three. Because most of us don't have to worry about that next meal. Most of us don't have this access to such power that we can change the lives of thousands of people, right? But all of us have pride that we ought to be living in submission to God with. All of us will have opportunities to take our eyes off Jesus and bow down to something else that's not God at all. Sometimes it's even good things, but it's still not what God wants. And so now the test is, can you use your pride for your own glory? And Jesus' response is what? Fear the Lord your God, serve him only. Take your oaths in his name. Do not put the Lord your God to test. Are we willing to live in a way that when the moments of weakness come, when the wilderness come, when the pride wells up, that we still take a step back and submit to God? Because if we worship God alone, then we trust God alone. If we worship God alone, We don't have to have it all together or figure it all out. We can just rely on what God has done. Because that's the message, I think, of not just Lent, but this entire passage, right? 
Do we trust God's word? And do we trust God's word? And do we do it always? Because that's what Jesus is calling us to do. So as we reflect on this whole passage, I want you to hold on to these four things. Number one, Jesus was tested. You will be too. I don't know where we hear it, but at some point in our Christianity, we think that tests mean that we don't belong to God. Or tests mean that God is punishing us. Or tests mean that like, we're not faithful enough, right? You can't apply any of those things to Jesus. Or tests means God's not with you. We can't apply any of those to Jesus. Yet Jesus was tested. And if Jesus, the Savior of the world, is tested, how much more will Satan try to test you? There's a, there's a Jewish proverb that N.T. Wright shares, and it says, My child, if you come to serve the Lord, prepare yourself for testing. I think we ought to hold on to that even more. And, and there's tons of tests that we have, right? There's tests in, in things that we thought we knew that we find out we don't know. There's tests in our privilege. There's tests in our position. There's tests in our thinking. There's tests in our theology. There's, so, there's tests with our children. There's tests with our bosses, right? There's so many different tests that we're going to have even before you get to the theological one. If you follow Jesus, prepare to be tested. If Jesus was tested, you will be too. But take heart. Where God's people failed in the Old Testament, Jesus succeeds. They needed 40 years before they entered the promised land, and they kept failing and failing and failing. But we have hope because God made it through. Jesus made it through. We can too. But the thing about this test is this is not the last test that Jesus suffered. And so it's not just if you follow Jesus, you'll be tested. It's not just, oh, take hope, Jesus succeeded. It's also the recognition that your life will be full of tests. And Wright again says it like this, and I thought this was a brilliant way to explain it. He says, put yourself back in school, right? Most of us, when we're in school, we don't just have one test, right? That would be weird. If you're in school, maybe mid-September, like, here's your first test, and then we're cool. We're done for the year, right? Like, most of us would think that's weird. But yet in the Christian life, when tests come, we're just like, I don't know. God doesn't love me anymore, Right? Think of that school mindset, because why do they test you? It took me to leave school to remember this, right, to actually learn this. Why do they test you? They test you because I've taught you something, and I need to know what you know about it, how you apply it. Do you really understand it? So that's why the tests keep coming over and over and over. It's not because God's not with you. It's not because God doesn't love you. It's not because God has turned his back on you. It's not because God's punishing you. It's because God is asking, have you truly learned and understood? What do you actually know? Do you really rely on me? So that's why the tests are going to keep coming. And lastly, if you just want to sum it all up, right? Jesus is the one we follow. So how am I following him today? That's the simple question, I think, of the entire Lenten season. So if we look at, you know, I think this has been great. Like last couple of weeks, we've been talking about all these different exercises and things you can do, right? I want you now to just give me a few minutes because I want you to think about sacrifice Again, not just as in what you give up, but as in who fills you up. Not just in sacrifice, but also in surrender. Because I think for all of us, we ought to do that inward work. And that inward work is, how am I praying to show my reliance on God? What am I learning from scripture that's reminding me of my reliance on God? How am I meditating? And what am I thinking on that's actually growing my reliance on God? What am I surrendering or how am I surrendering to increase my reliance on God? 
Because if we start there on the inward, right, if we start working on what God's working on inside of me, then as we pushed out into our world, that outward work is, is us bringing all of that into the darkness, into the brokenness. Because here's the thing. If you're fully reliant on God on Monday, you might be more reliant than I am on that Monday. And seeing your faith can help make me well. If you're more reliant on God on Thursday, and your sister's not as reliant on God, but they see you shining, that might encourage them to keep fighting for another day too. And that's what we have to hold on to, right? This is what it means to have a communal faith. We lose the mindset of how are me and God doing. And it's, yes, this is how me and God doing, but how are you doing? So when we go out into the world, how are we taking these things that we learned? Because if Jesus is our model, the word it should be not just sacrifice, but surrender. It should be not just living for God, but being filled by the Spirit. It should mean not just what we give up, but what we give up to follow God. So do not live on your physical needs. Trust in God's word and God's work. Do not rely on your privilege and your power and your position. Trust in what God has done and what God will do. Do not be dependent on what you've earned, on the pride that you hold on to. Submit, surrender, let the Spirit lead you. Amen? We'll continue our service now by um, going through communion. Hopefully, as you came in this morning, you were able to pick up the elements at the door. If you did not, please raise your hand. Um, the deacons are available to be able to pass them out. Um, Pastor Carmen will be coming up as we read through the communion liturgy together. In the next moments, we'll be sharing in communion together, celebrating the new life that we have in Jesus. Um, we don't ask or require that you're a member of the Harrisburg Brethren Christ Church, but we do ask that you're a follower of Jesus. Um, the deacons, again, will be passing out, so just keep your hands up and we'll be able to get you stuff. Um, Pastor Carmen will come up now as we go through the liturgy. table of the Lord, again, is for all who believe, for all who have received Jesus Christ as Lord. We now invite you to come to this table, not because we must, but because we may. We come to testify not that we are perfect, but that we sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. We come not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in our frailty, we stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. We come, not only to remember his death, but also his resurrection and promise to return. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before us, let us lift up our minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to us the witness of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let us join together now in a responsive reading for communion taken from John chapter 6. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus said, Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Jesus said, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
One way we are reminded that Jesus is the bread of life is to share in the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much that the God who provides manna in the wilderness is the same God who provided his son for us. Lord Jesus, we think of your ultimate sacrifice. But this morning, we also remember your life of sacrifice, your life of surrender, your life of being filled by the Holy Spirit. So Lord, we come before you at this table, giving our bodies up for you, grateful that you gave your body to be broken for us, grateful that you loved us so, that you're the bread of life that feeds us, that blesses us with eternal life, that blesses us with communion, that blesses us with community, that blesses us with union with you. So Lord, as we take this bread, we pray that we remember that with your stripes we are healed, with your brokenness we've been made whole, with your sacrifice we've been set free. In your name we pray, amen. My sisters and brothers, this bread which we break is it not the bread of the body of Christ. The, <laughs> I heard like the echo. Take and eat this bread. Oh, it's right there. Am I missing? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's on the back. Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your hearts and be thankful. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing. And he told his disciples, this is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we just thank you for the sacrifice, the sacrifice of sending your son for his blood to be shed for our forgiveness. We thank you for the sacrifice, Lord, that you made for us, my God, walking on earth and fulfilling the law so that we can have relationship with you, for we can have right relationship with each other. Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you have done by sending your son. We thank you for the blood, the washing, the cleansing, and the community. In Jesus' name. My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? This cup of blessing which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ. Take this cup remembering that he said, this is my, cup, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. Um, at this time, I'd like to invite up the worship team um, as we end our service with our final song. Uh, I'd like to also invite any of the other pastors in the room up front. We'd love to pray for you. Uh, maybe in response to something in the service or just anything you've got going on, we'd love to pray for you for that. Um, as we sing, we'd be reminded of the spirit that's here asking for our surrender. We'd be reminded of the sacrifice that God calls us to give that ultimately points us back to him. We'd be reminded that God fills us up so that we can go out and serve him. Let's stand and pray, sing together.
salvation where your love poured out over me now my soul cries out hallelujah praise and thinking of um, how do I get us to, to be reminded that even in this Lenten season, it's not just about what I do, it's about what we do. Um, and after staff meeting, uh, Pastor Linda actually shared a quote from an uh, early Christian, uh, uh, I guess, theologian, but also followed named Aristides, right? Now, what's tricky is there's two Aristides. I bet you didn't know that, right? Um, the second one we don't like as much because he's a military governor and I don't know, he's not as cool as this one, right? But this one's the first one. He's the original Aristides. I knew you needed that in your life. Now you have it, right? Thank me later. But this one said something I thought was really, really fascinating. As he thought about fasting and sacrifice, he didn't think about, hey, we do this to get closer to God. In fact, uh, what's fascinating is in his uh, apologia, which is kind of like, this is what I believe in the faith, right? Um, he starts off saying that we ought to believe God because God is real, God is big, God is here. This world you see, someone created as God, right? Cool. Then he kind of eviscerates people. Right? He goes to the barbarians. He goes to anyone outside the Greco-Roman Empire. And he's writing this to the Roman emperor. So I'm just like, this is kind of interesting. Just eviscerates people, but, but in like a scholarly academic way, right? No one really read it except maybe three people. So it's like he eviscerates people. But then he gets to the Christians. And then he talks about his conversion. And, and this is how, you know, he spoke of the Christians. So I want to give this as a benediction to us. And my prayer is that this is how the people outside see us and think of us. One of the things that he remarked about the Christians is that they would not only fast, right, but they weren't the richest. So if there was anyone in their community who needed, right, and that's this idea of giving that comes in Lent, they would actually fast for an extra day or two cut out their budget so that that person in need who's entered the community can have something, right? And these are the kind of people that he's saying, you're persecuting, oh emperor. This is who we are. And this is what he says. They do not keep for themselves the goods entrusted to them. They do not cover what belongs to others. They show love to their neighbors. They do not do to another what they would wish. They, they, would, yeah. they do not do to another what they would not wish to have done to themselves. They speak gently to those who oppress them. And in this way, they make their friends. It has become their passion to do good to their enemies. They live in the awareness of their smallness. Every one of them who has anything gives ungrudgingly to the one who has nothing. If they see a traveling stranger, they bring him under their roof. They rejoice over him as over a real brother. For they do not call one another brothers after the flesh, because they know they are brothers in the spirit and in God. If they hear that one of them is in prison or oppressed for the sake of Christ, they take care of all the needs. If possible, they set him free. If anyone among them is poor or comes into want while they themselves have nothing to spare, they fast two or three days for him. In this way, they can supply any poor man with the food he needs. This, O emperor, is the rule of life for the Christians, and this is the manner of their life. May we live this season May we live our lives, not just thinking about what we sacrifice to draw us closer to God, but what we give up so others can have bread. What we give up so others can be invited in under our roof. What we give up so that others can see, feel, know the love of Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, 
We pray that this morning and for our lives, that you help us to deny ourselves, that you teach us to sacrifice, that you teach us to surrender, that in the midst of the wilderness, we can trust your word, we can trust your work. On our march towards Easter and Resurrection Sunday and Good Friday and that celebration of what Jesus did, that we can still hold on to you, knowing that Jesus is our example. So now, Father, we pray, may, we, may what we give up point us to God. May every sacrifice we make help us remember Jesus our Christ. May every journey we take be led by the Holy Spirit. And may our surrender be found in resting in God. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week. Do, but I don't know if they work with AV on that. Like, right, right. It would, it, I don't know if it could work, but because I know the other church does, but they require everyone to wear like you have to have a pack on you. Yeah, even that. Even if I could have a pack, so I could like yeah, you could. Oh, you well, what? I mean, it, it, it plugs into here. Like even if it was like a wireless oh, pack, right, so I could yeah, be back yeah, yeah, yeah. and no. walk on stage with everything already ready to go. Well, right. one thing I do is like I'll put. And then Hank.